Good morning. My name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you, and it's great to have Aubrey and his family back with us. Now, we're continuing in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel, and this morning, we're picking up in chapters 21 and 22. If you have a Bible, please turn there with me. As you turn there, what do you do when someone throws a spear at you? (laughs) When someone insults you, or snubs you, or falsely accuses you? The answer might seem obvious to us. Somebody said duck. To others of us, it might be a bit more obvious. You pick it up and you throw it right back. That, we think, is the courageous thing to do. That's the bold thing to do. Even the most sensible thing to do. But for David, the answer wasn't so obvious. And that's because the person who was throwing the spear at David was Saul, God's anointed king. Of course, David uh, had also been anointed king. God had rejected Saul and had appointed David to take his place. But when would that happen? And how would that happen? And what in the world was David supposed to be doing in the meantime, our passage this morning begins with David running for his life. Saul has become a madman. He has declared David to be an enemy of the state, a rebel, a threat to the monarchy and, and to national security, but it's all baseless, you see. It's really nothing more than just the paranoia of an unpredictable tyrant. So David escapes into the wilderness. He's the king. And yet, in this season of his life, he's hiding like a fugitive. And you and I might refer to these years in David's life as the pre-king years. But David didn't know that. He had no idea what was happening, whether he would ever be king, whether he would live or die, and perhaps most importantly, whether he would survive this suffering, these wilderness years, without losing the very best parts of himself. That ultimately is the choice we face when someone is throwing spears at us. Will we be strong and retain our integrity? Or will the darkness that we condemn in our enemy find a backdoor entrance into our own hearts until we end up holding spears ourselves? That's the choice our passage presents to us this morning. Now let's press into that choice by looking first at this act of unrestrained evil that Saul performs in chapter 22. It's hard to imagine, really, someone degenerating more quickly than Saul. In verse 6 of chapter 22, Saul 
is clearly playing God. The text says, he's sitting underneath the tamarisk tree in the high places, which in pagan mythology was a seat reserved for the gods. It's a place of sacred worship, but there sits Saul. And surprise, surprise, he's holding a spear. So there you have it. Saul has officially become a king like the kings of the nations. Just like Samuel the prophet predicted in chapter 8. He has quite literally put himself in the place of God. He has taken on to himself a pagan likeness and wardrobe. And he has surrounded himself with yes-men from his home tribe of Benjamin, so as to continually reinforce this false reality in which he's living. And yet, Saul has become more than just a pagan king. Saul has become antichrist. Not only has he opposed David, the true king, but he's also making holy war against God himself. You may recall that only a few chapters earlier, in chapter 15, Saul had refused to carry out the ban against the Amalekites. But now he has no problem wiping out an entire community of priests along with women and children and cattle of Nob. So that stuff back in chapter 15 had nothing to do with Saul being a softie or humanitarian. This is a downward spiral so intense that it can make your head spin. How do we account for this? How does this happen? How can a person who is chosen by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, called to a holy vocation, end up cutting himself off from God and utterly destroying himself and everyone around him in the process? Or do those kinds of questions make us a bit too uncomfortable? Is that something we're not even willing to consider? Do we prefer to think that Saul's anointing and God's selection of him wasn't really all that genuine in the first place. I don't believe the Bible allows us to say that. Even if that happens to throw a wrench in our own belief systems. Turn back with me, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is a passage that describes Saul's anointing as king. We've only referenced it in our series this summer, but now I'd like to take just a few moments to look at it a bit more in depth. Look with me at chapter 10, verse 9. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Now jump to verse 10. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. For Samuel makes it clear that the gift of the Spirit affected Saul's heart. 
That is, the Spirit wasn't just given to him for official business, like ruling the kingdom, doing something great. Saul really did receive the Holy Spirit. God really did change his heart. And for a while, Saul stewarded that gift of the Spirit well. In the power of the Spirit, Saul gave the people of Israel a semblance, at least, of rest from their enemies, of the the Ammonites and the Philistines. And Saul showed the fruit of the Spirit by dealing mercifully with some of the people who had opposed his coronation. But then Saul sinned. And when when Samuel confronted Saul with it, Saul became this kind of religious contortionist. He's bending the truth here. He's stretching it there. He's diverting attention over here. And he's basically just wiggling out of taking even a modicum of responsibility for his faults. And now, Saul, King Saul, is chasing God's king and murdering God's priests. By the end of the book, spoiler alert, he'll be dining at the table of demons and consulting the witch of Endor. The scripture says that the spirit changed Saul's heart, but then Saul turned away. The scripture says that he received the spirit, but then lost the spirit. But that's just the Old Testament, right? Things are different now. No. To say that Saul's story is irrelevant to us makes total nonsense of Paul's instructions to avoid grieving or quenching the Spirit. It makes total nonsense of Judas who really did accept the call of Christ to be a disciple, who really was given spiritual authority, who really was promised that he would sit on one of the 12, on the, one of the 12 thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. It makes total nonsense of the alarming number of Christian leaders who spend decades preaching and teaching and praying and providing pastoral counsel to people and then leave their children their churches, leave their pulpits, leave their families off to a new life with their secret lover. And if we're honest, it makes total nonsense of our own experience in those moments when we can almost sense the evil one crouching at our door, plotting against us, hunting us down, tempting us beyond all our strength, and for the tiniest fraction of a second, we actually seriously entertained the thought of leaving the safe and loving arms of Jesus and diving headlong into the cauldron of our own deceitful desires. And yet we find it so easy to say, I would never do that. And we hear about an affair. We turn to our spouse and say, sweetheart, I would never do that. When we wanted to go to a party in high school, but our parents were uneasy about it, we'd reassure them, mom, dad, I would never do that. 
Wasn't that Peter's mistake? Jesus says, you will all fall away. And Peter says, Lord, I would never do that. You are not immune to darkness. What happened to Saul can happen to you, to me, to anyone. Do not think for a moment that you are exempt or that you can give up or that you can simply coast into the kingdom of God. It takes vigilance. It takes endurance and suffering and sweat. Now, surely this is works-based. Surely this is self-help, pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps theology. Is it? Or is it simply reality? Is it 1 Samuel? Is it the very thing David is experiencing as he runs through the wilderness and plans his next move? You see, David wasn't just running from the outward Saul. He was running away from the inward Saul, from the King Saul II that lived in his own heart, the man that returns insult for insult, fire with fire, blow for blow, evil for evil. But this man, this David, could not be king. God wouldn't let him be king. He loves David too much. And he loves his people too much for that to happen. No, if David is to become king, then his time in the wilderness must have its full effect. He must wait for Saul to die. Not just the outward one, but the inward one too. Only then would God give him the throne that he promised him. But how does David survive the wilderness? And how do you and I? How do we keep the wilderness from turning us into a Saul and allow it instead to shape us into righteous people, into godly people, into women and men to whom God loves to give the fullness of his kingdom. The only way to resist this dark and whirling cyclone of evil that wants to suck you into itself is to take refuge in God. It's to take refuge in God. That's what it all boils down to. All these warnings not to be like Saul should sober us. But they shouldn't leave us scared stiff. And they shouldn't lead us to doubt our own relationship with Jesus. They should call us to action. We need to receive the Bible as God's love letter to us. He's our Father, and we're His children. And because our Father loves us and longs for safety and well-being, He gives us warnings. Our one-year-old son, Owen, is just at the age when he is beginning to respond emotionally to correction. 
And one of the particular ways I like to take advantage of this situation (laughs) is to scare the living daylights out of him when he gets close to an electrical outlet. So the second I see his finger even get remotely close to the wall, um, I make as loud a noise as I I can. I'm clapping my hands like a Pentecostal, (laughs) stomping my feet, doing anything I can to get him away. And Mary Elizabeth gets frustrated with me because our outlets are tamper resistant. (laughs) But you know, you can't really trust technology. (laughs) It's just too much fun to stop now. But you know, sometimes warnings can be intense. Sirens, alarms, shouting. But yet the intensity of it is justified as long as it fits the threat. That, and of course, if it's done out of love and not to scare somebody. But God's warnings aren't just about helping us to escape from danger. It's not just getting out. They're about helping us flee to safety, get to refuge. So how do we do this? How do we take refuge in God? Turn with me to chapter 21, where we get a peek into David's rendezvous with Ahimelech at Nob. And I'd like for us to see from David's own story three ways that we can take refuge in God. And the first way is that we must find rest in the sanctuary of God. When David's fleeing from Saul in verse 1, he runs straight to Nob, to the sanctuary of God. Now, why does he do that? What exactly is David looking for? He's not looking for community. Not while he's trying to keep a low profile. He's not looking for a sermon. Not while he's in such a hurry. And I don't even think he's primarily looking for physical protection because let's face it, priests don't exactly tend to be the buffest men in the gym. So if David were looking for a halfway decent bodyguard, I think it's obvious that he would go somewhere else. So what's David looking for? Well, what are you looking for whenever you enter into a sanctuary? You're looking for God. You're looking for a way to be close to Him and especially attentive to Him. And for whatever reason, churches have always attracted runaways and refugees. When I was in my early 20s, I lived... It sounds so far away now that I'm 30. (laughs) When I was in my early 20s, um, I lived above an Anglican chapel as a Baptist on LSU's campus in Baton Rouge. And I was essentially the sexton. And one of my responsibilities was to keep the prayer chapel secure because it was open 24-7. And often the prayer chapel was nothing more than a homeless shelter. And my duty was to ask these people to leave. But I admit I wasn't very good at that. Because where else would they go? Where else could they go if not to the church? 
Sure, maybe they were only looking for rest and relief from the heat, but couldn't they also have been looking for God? Even subconsciously, couldn't they have secretly been longing for that communication and connection with Him? Now, I know the church is more than a building. It's the people, but buildings are important. Sanctuaries are important. A sanctuary is a place for paying attention to God. It's a place where the truth of God is preserved and honored. It's a place for, resember, for remembering the, the events in which God has been clearly and active and powerful. David arrived at the sanctuary of Nob desperate, running for his life. But what he needs, more than physical safety, is help in maintaining a God-attentive life. Help in living out the life of anointing and service and prayer that God had activated in him. Saul was out to destroy David, to kill him, to dehumanize him. And so David finds shelter in the church. Where do you go for shelter when your life gets overwhelming? Where do you run to sanctuary knowing that all sanctuaries are supposed to make you attentive to something? Is it to the local bar? Is it to the privacy of your iPhone? How do you deal with temptation, with your own weaknesses and failures? Do you run to the church? Or do you avoid it, dodge it, postpone it? The truth is, the most important time to go to church is when you don't feel like it. When we're depressed, or ashamed, or exhausted, or disinterested, we don't want to go to church. But those are the very times when we need the church when we need the sanctuary the most. The church is God's fortress against evil. It's the place where we can run and be safe, even if that means we're running from ourselves. And so run to the sanctuary. And like David, find rest in the church. Second, we must find nourishment in the bread of God. In verse 3, David has the audacity to ask for holy bread. Verse 3, now what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. And jump to verse 6. Since there was no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced that day with fresh bread. So it's the Sabbath presumably, and David has no problem taking the consecrated bread. For him, it's about survival. He even lies to get it. But when you're malnourished, of course, you'll just do whatever it takes. Every week, God offers his bread to us here at the table. And unlike David, we don't have to feel the need to lie about who we are 
where we've been or convince God that we really do need it or beg him for it. No, he freely gives it to us. He wants us to have it. In a few moments, Aubrey will stand behind the table, hold up the bread and wine to us, and say, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you. Do you hear that? Take them. That's what God wants us to do with them. He wants us to take them, to receive them, to be thankful for them. Jesus says to his disciples, take, eat. It's similar to what our doctors tell us when just prescribing medicine. They say, take this. Should we then say, no, I really shouldn't. That wouldn't be appropriate. (laughs) No, we take it and... We trust the wisdom of the doctor and we trust the wisdom of his diagnosis. So this table, what we call the Eucharist, it's not a reward for living a good life. It's medicine because you've lived a very bad one. And in this medicine, the Lord Jesus gives us his very self. He fills us with his strength, with his vitality, with his love, with his mercy. Jesus meets us in the wilderness with a feast. And maybe that's the image that God wants you to take home and ponder this morning. He's not the one hunting you down, calling you to account for your actions. He's the one who's setting up camp for you Providing you with the refuge you need. He's the one who's bandaging your wounds, listening to your troubles, and giving you a home-cooked meal. That's what happens every Sunday morning. So do you want to be made well? Do you want to resist your inner Saul? Do you want to survive these wilderness years? Then come to the table. Not because you've earned it, but because you so desperately need it. Don't decline God's invitation to you. Finally, we must find safety in the arms of God. Turn with me to the very end of our passage, chapter 22, verse 23. Abiathar is the only priest to escape Saul's massacre. He runs to David, and David tells him, Stay here with me and don't be afraid. I will protect you with my own life. David's character is in full bloom. We're beginning to see what kind of king God created him to be. He's a shepherd king. And he treats each one of his subjects not as his slaves, but as his precious lambs. He protects them, he provides for them, he risks his life for them. And it's a picture of who Jesus is for us. He's our shepherd king, the one who protects us from wandering off in the darkness. Who protects us with his own life. Why would we stray from him? Why would we wander off into the darkness without him? He's our security. 
You say, Drew, this sermon, it's taken away my security. Okay? Your security is in Christ. So stay with him. That's the key word here. Stay with your shepherd. David says, stay with me. And Jesus says to us, stay with me. You're my precious lamb. Stay with me and you won't get lost. Stay with me and I won't let you go. Stay with me. And you'll be safe in the wilderness. The artist Andrew Peterson has a song called Give Us Faith to Be Strong. And I'll just close by asking you to make these words, the words of his chorus, your own prayer. Give us faith to be strong. Give us strength to be faithful. This life is not long, but it's hard. Give us grace to go on. Make us willing and able. Lord, give us faith to be strong. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.